Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hello, Ramblers. Andy here. Welcome to another Ramble Meets. I really enjoyed doing this one. It's with one of my childhood heroes. Yes, one of the guys from that great Wimbledon team who won the FA Cup, although he went on to greater heights afterwards. It's John Scales. He was uh, thrown in at the deep end in the post-Dave uh, Bassett era at Wimbledon, which he tells us about and how he got through that, how he became uh, an England centre-half, how he ended up playing for one of the most exciting Liverpool teams of the 90s is all in there as well as the work he's doing now with Fair Game to make the game a fairer place and look forward to its future. He's very interesting and engaging on all of it. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. This is Ramble Meets John Scales. So if we do take it all the way back to the beginning, John, when was the point where you realised at Leeds that being a professional footballer might be a genuine possibility? Gosh, I mean, you know, football was never anything that I'd given any serious consideration to in any shape or form. I love sport. I played all sport. I played golf. I was a good athlete. I played rugby. We didn't really play much football at school, you know, uh, but I love football. I played every single minute of every single part of the day that was possible, you know, before school, break time, lunchtime, next break, after school. You know, kick about in the park. Um, Love my football, but I did. It wasn't structured. I played a bit of Sunday football and whatever. And it was only when I left school that I, I great friend of my mum's, lived next door to Eddie Gray, leant over the fence. So the story goes, and said, "Look, you know, John's left school. He's he's a good athlete. He's playing football for the county. Have a look." So it, I went to Leeds, and you know, I was a fish out of water in many ways as I was when ultimately I ended up at Wimbledon, you know, three years later or so. Um, But at Leeds, I think the penny dropped for me when I switched from playing as an attacker, as a centre forward or a winger. And I remember the day, and I don't remember that much about, you know, my my story of football so much, uh, you know, isolated moments. What Mm. I do remember is one day at Ellen Road, the training pitches were opposite the main stand 
and you went up the steps and we we changed in the porter cabins the first team changed in the changing rooms in inside ellen road we were in these sort of porter cabins this sort of block of changing rooms that were uh pretty bleak and uh at the back end of that was a sort of a court where we play these five sides and it was it was one day that I, I suddenly in training was playing at the back and suddenly felt comfortable in defence. And I think it was Pete Gumby, Keith Mincher, the two coaches of the, of the youth team then, reserves, uh, came to me or we had a chat and I said, oh, I, I like playing there. That suited me. And he said, yeah, well, we could see that. You look much more comfortable. Um, and so I played in a reserve game. And I played at fullback and had a great game and, and suddenly played there for about four or five months. And I think it was that moment that I felt uh, actually I could learn this game and play this game at a high level well. Um, and had it not been for that moment in that five-a-side game where I hadn't switched positions just out of I can't remember why, um, maybe I wouldn't have I would have dropped out of football. I got released by Leeds, as as you know, you know, just mm. four four five months later, and you know, a lot of us were culled from that Leeds uh, Leeds sort of junior reserve setup then, um, and off I found myself at Bristol Rovers. Yeah. So was it easier to cope with having come to the game quite late and maybe not having the ambitions to make it from? you know, in the cradle or as, as a toddler or whatever, or, or was it still quite harsh when the moment came and Leeds said, it's, it's not going to happen here? No, by that time I'd been at Leeds for 15 months and I, I love the game. I love playing football at that level and being in and around that environment with, with the type of players that were at Leeds. And um, there was some great quality there. You know, Frank Gray was in the dressing room um Eddie was the manager Peter Lorimer was still around a little bit but you had you know the youngsters in in that team uh there's some great talent in that team so in the youth team reserves so I think it was a shattering blow when Eddie called me into his office and said no actually sorry it wasn't Eddie it was Pete Gumby Keith Mincher the, the two of them they called me in and I'd spoken to Eddie and he said look you know you show real talent, but you know we've got our issues here. We've, we've got to let you go, and it, and it was it was a shattering blow. I remember that day and walking out of the office and thinking, you know, what am I going to do next? You know, this was it. I, I'd fallen in love with playing football, and 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 I thought I had a real shot. And both, you know, my coaches spoke incredibly highly about what I'd done over the previous three four months and the potential I had. So yeah, it was it was a big blow. And I, I guess what separates the footballers who come back from that sort of blow and the, the, the ones who don't and end up having their I nearly made it story is how you deal with the next bit. And it, it must have clicked at, at, at Bristol Rovers. What was it about the environment there and the, and, and the people there and your own way of dealing with it that, that helped you get to that point where top division clubs are interested in you? I suppose, you know, Bobby Gould was on a trip with the Leeds youth team on a ferry crossing over to France, apparently. Um, Bobby was talking to them. They talked about a couple of players. My name cropped up. He said, well, I'll, I'll meet John and get him down to Bristol Rovers on a trial. We met at Sheffield United at Bramall Lane. Uh, and, and soon after, I went down to Bristol on a sort of a three-month trial uh, and then subsequently signed a professional contract, uh, despite being dragged off in a pre-season game where Tony Cotty ran me absolutely ragged at the old East <laughs> Stadium. Oh my God, I, I mean, I was hopeless. And I thought, well, this this definitely is the end of me. Anyway, I somehow survived that and ended up with a professional contract. And and yeah, it's it's resilience. It's, it's desperation. It's uh, a love of the game. It, it, it's, it's been in the right place at the right time. It's having an opportunity. It's seizing that opportunity. There are a multitude of things that, you know, players look back on and say, well, there for the grace of God, I would have failed or fallen by the wayside or there for the grace of God, I, I, I got my opportunity and I seized it and took it. And, and somewhere in between all that, you know, I, I managed to get in and sign a professional contract to Bristol and then, you know, players are full back and do well at the right level for me to learn the game at the, down in the third division as it was then. Um, maybe without the pressure, um, have good uh, mentors around me. Um, 
And I think from that perspective, uh, when the move came and Bobby Gould two years later got the job at Wimbledon and I was sort of 20, uh, I'd become accustomed to the dressing room, become accustomed to being a professional footballer. I'd learnt my trade at a lower level and I was ready for the next next stage of my development. And presumably Bobby being there made the adaptation easier, but Wimbledon wasn't any old top flight club. It's not like walking down the, the the marble halls at Highbury or anything like that. Plough Lane was much loved, the original Plough Lane, but it was a beaten up old ground in, in those days with a nightclub in the side. Um, and Wimbledon were known for, in that first division, uh, in that first division first season, for playing a certain way. And they'd attracted a, a lot of chatter um, in, in the media because of that. So what was your perception of Wimbledon before you went there and what was your perception after after a couple of weeks at the club I suppose I think my perception was this is a lovely leafy part of South London you know the tennis is around the corner it's got to be it's not going to be as bad as people make out and you know I, I think I was Southampton was potentially an option for me to move to uh Bobby got the job and I thought going with Bobby to Wimbledon that's that's a good move and and you know there's an opportunity there with this club and you know Things can't be as bad, surely, as, as people make out. And they were worse. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they were worse. When I when I got here, I mean, I was in digs down the road from where I live now still. You know, I've, I've always gravitated back towards Wimbledon Village. I love this area of uh, the country. And it's my home. And, um, you know, I'm in digs and, and I'm in that dressing room. And it was brutal. And it was, and, uh, you know, all the things that I've said before. Um, and somehow, again, I sort of somehow navigated my way through that 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 brutality of the transition from Dave Bassett's era and his his lads to Bobby Gould and Don Howe and the, you know the transition to the to the new players coming in and there were you know four or five of us that came in that summer so and then of course the cup final you know at the end of that year we're, we're in the cup final so you know you're moving forward things are positive the club's you know suddenly successful and therefore those issues become less relevant in some ways, although they're under under the surface. That it is, it is there is some instability with the old brigade feeling threatened by the new brigade, the new era, the changes happening, and everything else, and the and the way in which Wimbledon operated um, and the personalities. It's all about the personalities within the dressing room, and it was a, it was a tough place to be. But ultimately, you know, the moves that I got and the career I had, uh, it was the best thing that could happen to me. I mean, there was the BT Sport film, wasn't there, a couple of years back, um, as, as you alluded to there, I, I think, on on the Crazy Gang and on, on that era. And a couple of you who'd come in, like yourself and, and, and Terry Phelan, uh, I think the ones really spring to mind for me, said it was like very mentally challenging. You know, you had to show a, a, a lot of toughness. Would that sort of environment be allowed to exist in this era that we are now? And... How did Bobby deal with it? Because as the the manager back then, rather than head coach, you, you set the tone. But he was a following a Wimbledon legend in in Dave Bassett, and also trying uh, trying to, I guess, make things run for him against the culture that was very well established anyway. And they they had a certain way of doing things. Masterstroke was getting Don Howe in. A masterstroke for Bobby was understanding the power of that dressing room and the power that it had that he would have been dead had he challenged it in any other way than embraced it uh you know a lot of shrewdness in realizing that the best way of of that club regulating itself at the time was the dressing room and to have allow it to have that freedom of expression that it had and that the best way probably of me being a an asset to that club was to have to have to cope with that environment, and that it and that there would it it would either it would serve its purpose one way or the other, and I would either be able to cope with it or not. And, and he's not going to he wasn't going to. I mean, I was I was called the son of Bob, you know, and there was a whole load of banter, obviously, from from that that I, he brought me in from Bristol, and you know, you, any weakness is going to be found out and and exaggerated and used uh, to to uh, make your life difficult and so but I think he he understood that you know that, that dressing room was going to be the making of me or it was going to be the, the finish of me 
he was a strong leader, um, Bobby, and strong leadership was about not having those, in, you know, masking those insecurities. A lot of managers have and just put yes men around him. He wanted to be challenged. He was prepared to put himself out there and, uh, and, and understand the mechanics of it. And, and I, I quickly realised all that. Uh, and I guess winning the FA Cup at the end of that first season that you were there is, is, is the ultimate validation for for your work as, as, as a group. I mean, AFC Wimbledon, which we'll come to later, is everyone's favourite underdog story now. And it's maybe missed by, I guess, younger people that at that time, there are a lot of people in the run-up to the cup final saying it would be the worst thing that could happen for football if Wimbledon would win the final. I mean, how much of a, a motivating factor was that for you going into that final against, you know, still one of the best clubs to, club teams of, of British history, really? Well, probably because it was Liverpool, because they were the, the, the pinnacle of football and the epitome of, of greatness and, and everything good about the game, the way the game should be played. I mean, that, that played into our hands. You know, had it been maybe a, a team not so revered and, and, as Liverpool, we might not have had the result we did. You know, maybe everything conspired for us and against Liverpool on that day. Oh, the tension here. He's checked with both linesmen. Oh, crazy gang have beaten the culture club Wimbledon have destroyed Liverpool's dreams of the double and all over the pitch their players are celebrating something which a few years ago would have been impossible sporting gesture by the Liverpool supporters Her Royal Highness applauds one of the great cup shocks of all time well, it was clearly acknowledged in the game, wasn't it? Because as soon as the cup final was over, um, big bids came in and um, Dave Besant, Andy Thorne, key players were, were were transferred out. And eventually, after a difficult start to 88-89, you talked about how the positional change from forward to fullback changed your career. Arguably, this moment where you end up almost drafted in as an emergency centre-back after that difficult start to the season, that ends up being the position that takes you on to greater and greater heights. Yeah, it was Andy Thorne moving. And I think my first game was at Newcastle. Uh, and I think I remember going up to Newcastle and playing centre-half for the first game of the season and, and absolutely at that point realising uh, you talked about Leeds. When did you find out you feel you, you could you could make it as a player? It was only that moment, which is why I said fast forward, sort of three years, whatever it was, uh, maybe four years from that one, from that uh, Leeds United uh, incident and uh, experience of being released. Uh, that suddenly playing centre half for Wimbledon at Newcastle, uh, that was it. That's my position. That's where I'm most comfortable. That's where I'm my talents, you know, are best deployed, and and, and I can become a, I can become a top top player and it was really that moment where it all it all it all clicked for me and you have a couple of really great years followed by what the 93-94 season where Wimbledon finish sixth um, some good stuff happens in in the cup so this is post the move to, to to Selhurst Park obviously but Wimbledon's great great Premier League season opens the door for you go into Liverpool. I mean, was there a sense that this is as far as I can go with with Wimbledon? Were you aware of interest from a lot of other clubs or was Liverpool just the the ultimate and you, you felt you had to push that? No, I, I, I felt I'd served my time at Wimbledon and I felt that I would regret it, forever regret, if I didn't move and have an opportunity at a big club and test myself with the best amongst the best and on that on that level. And so... I was pushing for a move because the year before there was there was there was interest uh, from Liverpool and other clubs um, that didn't transpire that I could get away the year before to Liverpool. That deal didn't happen. I was very frustrated. Uh, I had a big bust up with the club, um, and I thought, "Gosh, you know, I'm 26, 27. You know, my time's running out. You know, to get a big move." Um, and it was it was difficult, but I, I got my head down and thought, right, okay, the only way I'm going to get a move is if I'm playing well. So I get my head down. It hasn't happened. And then the following season, Liverpool were in, which obviously, you know, my team, I, I love Liverpool and, and 
we'd done it, done anything to have played for Liverpool. Um, and Kenny, Kenny was also interested. He was manager of Blackburn. And so you got sort of the, the icon of Kenny Dalgleish and you've got Liverpool, my club, and, you know, one or two others. But they'd been sort of disregarded completely. It was sort of a, a, a you know, how can I say no to Kenny Dalgleish? Um, and I did, and I felt so bad and, and ended up going to Liverpool. And, I, yeah, it was a relief that that deal happened. So... You're part of Liverpool as as well at a very interesting time because um, you had this point where they were imperious throughout the 80s and the start of the 90s. And then, as you say, Kenny Dalglish leaves. Things start to change. Um, Liverpool aren't quite what they were. But by the time you're there, it's building into something else around young players like Fowler and McManaman. And all of a sudden, Liverpool is something very exciting again. Yeah, it was a great time to be in Liverpool. I love Liverpool as a city. The people, you know, living there, just the, the, a great place to live, great club to play for. I mean, everything was fantastic. And, and the, the group of players that we had were a real special bunch. And to be in and amongst that uh, was a great privilege for me. Uh, to be running out at Anfield and in front of the cop and, and, the, and the supporters is just the greatest experience of my life. Amazing. Uh, but we we failed to fulfil our potential, and, and and it was frustrating. And as a player, you know, you you put all all of that emotional stuff to one side, and you put all of that that thing that right, you know, this is I'm at Liverpool. You know, Manchester United are better than us. They're they're doing things better than us off the pitch, and and, and consequently on the pitch, and. Uh, that's there are big rivals, and we were we were falling short. And it was incredibly frustrating to see that we had equally as talented a group as players as as, as Manchester, just to, just obviously down the road. Um, but we weren't uh, we weren't doing the business consistently and on on a high enough level. We we were runners up. We we got to the cup final. We played them. We lost to them. We won the league cup. You know, we, we got some great results. We were lauded for our for our the, the players and the and the way we played the game, but there was a missing piece of the jigsaw, and and you know that unfortunately uh, was where we fell short. Extra time looming large, but Manchester United have a corner. Gary Pallister calling for it. James can only fist it. It comes for Cantona. You just couldn't write this script. Was it ever really the same after you left Liverpool? Did you start to lose a bit of the feeling for for playing football? Do you think? Oh, I never. No, I never lost the feeling for uh, for playing football. I mean, even five years ago, I was thinking, you know, I, I should be. I, your head tells you all <laughs> sorts. The body's given up long before, but your head. Right. I mean, you talk to any professional footballer, probably in their forties, probably early fifties, they're still thinking, "God, when I go out and play, I can play this game brilliantly." Uh, what you don't realise, mm. you might only last about five minutes, and that's no good to anybody. But that's beside the point. Um, uh, I've forgotten the question. What was the question? Was what was it? Was it ever the same after Liverpool? I suppose. Uh, no, physically it wasn't because of the injuries. No, it was never the same. Um, I was always striving. I was never satisfied with my performance. I was my biggest critic. I was harsh, really harsh with myself. And so I was always looking to, to get better. I was, you know, my personality is one that I suppose coming into the game the way that I did was one of sort of driven by insecurity, if you, if you get that. Others, I think, are driven by uh, a real self-belief that they're, they're great and they've grown up with this and this is what they know and they do well. Everybody has different attributes to their personality and brings something different in that personality to a dressing room. Um, so I was always looking to get better and better and better and never satisfied. Uh, and that's why I sort of fast forwarded to sort of, you know, five years ago almost that you think, God, what could I do now that I know now that I didn't know then? Um, Spurs was, was frustrated because I'd, I'd torn my calf so badly that preseason after the cup final in 96. And I left within six months and joined Spurs. Um, I thought I was great over the injury. It was a calf strain. Fine. Um, soon after, I had tore my hamstring. There was an imbalance. It ultimately probably came from um, my back. And, and 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 in football in those days, 
uh, not never to pass the buck or the responsibility, but you know, there was a habit of fixing the injury and not the cause, and therefore we, th- th- there was a sort of uh, a narrowness to the way in which you know players needs to be back out. You, you know, the squads weren't so big. Um, you've been signed for a lot of money. You, you, the manager was on borrowed time. They wanted the best eleven out there, and they were rushing players back out. So the physios were under enormous pressure. The doctor of the club at Spurs was under enormous pressure. Uh, you know, get them back out as soon as they're fit. Get back out on the training pitch, and that didn't work in my favour. I, I was, you know, always wanting to get back too soon. Other players would sort of understand that they needed to manage those injuries carefully, come back when the time was right for them. And I always was desperate to get back in the team and get back playing and get back on the training pitch. And, and it was to my detriment, ultimately, that, you know, I had this spiral of injuries. And, and, and I suppose there were spells when I played um, and spells when I didn't. And stop-start of, of, of playing in that way was, was, was never a good thing for myself or the team. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. So you talk to a lot of players who've had injury problems in the back end of their career and it maybe gives them time to reflect on what they want to do next after after career because you've got loads of life left after your career and, and, and you've got to fill it with something meaningful. So I guess a lot of guys in your position think about either, I guess the two main ones are coaching or punditry. You end up taking a slightly different different route even though you're still very passionate about football and remain involved in it so tell us about the direction that you took and why you took that direction I think because I'd uh, back to when I started at Leeds and I first left school halfway through my A levels I did my mock A levels and, and then suddenly came out of school and was was wondering what to do I, I left school at an awkward time and that's when you know I fell into into Leeds and got that opportunity. But at the same time, my best mate from school had left after a year of his A-levels and set up a, a sports shop in a tennis and squash club in North Leeds. And in my infinite wisdom, uh, the two of us went into partnership and we opened another couple of shops on the high street uh, in Leeds. And, and uh, because I didn't know I was going to be a footballer. So, of course, we had great fun, me and my mate, uh, James, and we had the, the no sweat, the, the, the shops in, in Leeds. And that was an interesting time. And my career was sort of going one way and then the next. Um, so I had that entrepreneurial spirit. And I think that's sustained me through my playing career. I got involved with doing a whole load of sports marketing things, working with uh, sports companies, getting involved with a, an agency that ran the rights for Dennis Burkamp, fun enough, when I was at Liverpool and brokering some deals with, with the, the image rights of, of Burkamp and brokering a deal for Jamie to get involved with some stuff, Jamie Redknapp at Liverpool. So I was involved. And so when I was when I moved back to London, one of the reasons I wanted to I, I turned Leeds down and George Graham and, and signed for Spurs was because I wanted to get back to London. I was involved with a, a, a big agency and who was moving into the sports field. And uh, I just thought that was sort of the transition and the, an opportunity to get to understand that side of 
the commercial business. It was a licensing agency. And actually, funny enough, with a year to go before I finished playing, I set up a, an, an international sports licensing agency and took the head of sport for that, that business uh, and went into partnership together. So I, I was already transitioning into the, the next stage. And I think it just happened organically and naturally and taking the opportunity. Was it the right thing to do? Uh, did I make mistakes? I made catastrophic mistakes in acquiring rights from uh, for global rights for Juventus Football Club for nine years, uh, exorbitant minimum guarantees. And my partner had sort of an illness and staff and you know, paying out this fees. Uh, it, I mean, I, it was a, a steep, that was a steep learning curve, but um, one that uh, had its consequences, let's say, but it was, it was an interesting chapter of my life of this, this transition out of, out of football at 34, 35, when I had that last season at Ipswich into managing and running this agency, having another business, which was a sports events company and hitting the road running, you know, of what's next, what's next, you know, and, thinking everybody talks about a player's career coming to an end, you know, coming on to the next chapter. And yeah, interesting time to say the least. So by this time, for a long time, you've been involved with top level football for ages, both as a player Mm. and with um, a a management and marketing perspective. So you said about being drawn back to Wimbledon and how it's your home. When AFC Wimbledon is taking off, What's your view of that and how does it maybe make you look at a little bit differently about football and the possibilities of how it can be structured? I think when I, I, it didn't really register, I'll be honest, it didn't really register too much when Liverpool, uh, when Wimbledon were reforming. I, I fell out of love with football a bit when I, when right. I finished. Um, I was very busy with the marketing side and the, and the licensing side and busy with running a business and, and flat out with it. And that was that ultimately failed. And, and, and so there was maybe a bitterness from that. Maybe there was a, the, the frustration of finishing football injured and, you know, all that was unfulfilled and yet I achieved so much, but unfulfilled. Um, and it was around that time Wimbledon were reforming. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a sort of, I was preoccupied with getting married business that was failing busy flat out every day with that running that, um, and up in living in North London. Uh, so it wasn't until really uh, I moved down to Wimbledon in about 2005 and saw what was really going on with Wimbledon and re- the reformation or the formation of AFC Wimbledon and started to understand this this fantastic story of, of a club reborn and, you know, me being able to uh, see football for what it was and, and fall back in love with the game and do a lot of commentary and get back involved in that side of the game and understand and then understand that I was able to give something back to the game that gave me so much so I just put myself out there and said look anything that Wimbledon need I'm available I'll put myself forward I never had an agent so everybody always had my number they contact me directly and I would do what I could when I could um and that's really where it started and where it still is um you know i'm i'm a great supporter of the club um i i do whatever's required or wanted or i can um and that's great um, and it's a it's a tiny tiny bit of an incredible story that 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 is afc wimbledon an incredible story and there are so many volunteers and people around that club that deserve enormous credit for what they've what they've achieved and and it's well documented and they've they've got their credit and that's fantastic um and it's now at a place where um it needs to take the next steps of becoming now a mature club established club with different challenges um and and not dwell on the sort of backslapping now from having moved to plow lane and 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 the, the 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 uniqueness of that story and the epitome of what it stands for, all the good that it stands for in the game and everything which we'll come on to with fair game that I'm involved with now about the governance of football and, 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 and everything else. But um, as a club now, yeah, it's a great, it's a, it's a, it's a pivotal time that they, they need to make that, make that, that next transition. Um, they've got a great young manager in there. I, I, I know Mark well, and, and, and Robbo's a, a really astute coach. The players respond brilliantly to him. He knows the game 
of what he he's very sure of what he wants his teams to do and how they want to play. So I've got great faith. They've got a great coach. Um, like most clubs at the moment, COVID especially, you know, restricted by um, money and the constraints and the and the, the crisis that COVID has brought upon football. Um, yeah, it's a difficult period of time, but uh, I think I think they'll come through it well. And and but there there's there's yeah, I just sense I'm not I'm not close enough to know everything, but I'm close enough to see that you know it's a it's a it's a, it's a critical time this next sort of 12, 24 months for the club. Yeah, and you, you talked about getting familiar with the club back in 2005 when it's already a great story. If you fast forward to now and being back at Plough Lane, it is extraordinary. As as you say, the club could do with realising how it's got to build on that, but it's kind of inevitable in a way that you're going to enjoy the moment because even going back to 2005, it's it's just an incredible tale. I mean, you couldn't have thought that was possible back then. Looking at fair game, is Plough Lane and um, I, I guess AFC Wimbledon's ability to get there, is that something that, that inspires fair game, that makes it think that it is possible to change things with supporter power? Well, without doubt, you know, what, what, what it shows is that when all else fails, when everybody else fails, when everybody else tries to take an opportunity for selfish greed or, you know, abuse a situation within football, it's the, it's the fans that pay the price. It's, it's the fans that uh, are the lifeblood of a club. It's the fans that are the epitome of what football stands for. And, you know, what I've seen and why I maybe fell out of love with the game at the time or whatever is the values of the game as a professional footballer and the way in which things transpire or the the emphasis sometimes skews towards more the commercial side of the game and less towards the community impact they have, the, the social role they have in communities, et cetera, et cetera. The story of Wimbledon really brings back that hope and demonstrates better than any other club, you know, I think what, what a football club stands for, what it can do, what it can achieve and, and what it can do for communities. Um, that said, look, I don't, I don't agree with, with everything um, that uh, Wimbledon do all the time. I don't just go along blindly with, with, with things that, that are in and around the game. I, I like to challenge everything from my perspective and to understand and listen to the, the other side of the argument. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's fair game is, is, a, is an, an amazing organization. Um, yeah. Tell us a bit about it and, and what inspired it to come together. Well, what inspired it to come together, I, I think was, was, was Niall Cooper, who's on the Don's trust and, um, you know, approaching me and talking about, Wimbledon story about the work that I've done with the club um, and really about his his vision and shared with a couple of other people about the vision for what needs to be done uh, for the game and on behalf of the game uh, and, and really what Wimbledon stood for and what other clubs he was hearing, you know, looked on with that, that they realised that their club should, should have similar principles and values that Wimbledon uh, had. And, you know, you got had Newport County, I think, you know, very much aligned with the, with the thinking of, of Wimbledon and structured similarly. Um, so I said, look, listen, I absolutely buy into the principles and values of, of what you're talking about, what fair game can stand for. I absolutely buy into the principles and values of what football should undertake as a recalibration of, of, of where the game's gone wrong and, and where the game struggles and where the uh, unfairness of the game has, has reached. Um, so yeah, I'm on board. I'll, I'll support you. Absolutely. And so from those early days, fair game and, and led brilliantly by Niall and, and with the, with the other directors and, and with this, with the experts that we've brought together and the politicians that have seen the value of what it stands for, both politically and from a, a, many of them football fans themselves and the communities they serve. Uh, it's come a long, long way so that now that we've, we've, we've uh, published the manifesto about all those principles and values of what fair game stands for, but actually create through our network of experts and academics that have come to work as a, as a, a single team 
you know, there's probably 70, 80, 90 of us involved with Fair Game in one shape or form. And to, to put forward uh, solutions for the game that many other organizations just talk about the issues and talk about things. What, what Fair Game has done is actually put a set of solutions together very carefully and considered. And, and it's got to be remembered that Fair Game are the clubs. Yeah, you know, there's, well, that's, that's right. there's over 30 clubs, clubs, 32 clubs yeah. now, you know, that, that Fair Game represents, if you like. They're the, they're, Fair Game is the voice of those 32 football clubs. And it's really important to remember that, that Fair Game is, 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 is an organisation that doesn't speak for itself. It speaks on behalf of those clubs. And we are, we are having a, a meeting next week with uh, other clubs, um, more League One clubs and other, other clubs within the pyramid to persuade more to join you know, this, this sort of mission that Fair Game has. Um, and more will come on board because it's very difficult when you get into conversation with any club that you can argue with any of the things that Fair Game talks about. I think maybe some of the some of the things people say, well, we've seen this before. Fair Game is just going to be like all the other things that have happened over the last 30, 40 years. Whenever there's been a review or there's been a sort of a white paper written about the game or there's been a, you know, the creditors rule that's got to go or the, 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 the European Super League has come and gone and fans have, you know, got that, got rid of that sort of for now. Um, Fair Game will fall the same way. It'll be, they'll have Tracy Crouch review. It'll be you know published as a report and it'll be put on a, a shelf and it will see that there in five years' time and say, oh, you know, there was an opportunity for the game to be better. Um, so, so we're working hard with players coming on board, with clubs, obviously more clubs and more like-minded clubs and clubs understanding, hopefully, that collectively we can really change the game and they can be the, the, the change themselves. Um, that's the mission and it carries on and it continues. But uh, yeah, that, it, it's great for me to be part of that. It's, it's a real privilege to be part of a, a, an organization that, that, uh, that helps. I mean, that's it, isn't it? We, we, we can talk about um, sustainability and transparency and a great support of representation and all the things that fair game uh, talks about, but the clubs actually being the motor for that change, that, that is something totally new, isn't it? It is. The, the, the clubs are the ones who can rewrite the rules. The clubs are the members of the EFL and the FA and, and the Premier League and, and, and everything else. So um, they are the ones that can make the change. They can't do it individually. And I think they've realised that. But actually, collectively, they have a very powerful voice. And, you know, uh, it's not about the big six that, you know, that dominate everything financially, but they don't... Um, uh, that the other clubs collectively have a huge and powerful voice, especially in this club in this country with the pyramid system. Um, so I think that's being understood now. Uh, when you look at what we stand for, it, it, a lot of it is just common sense. You know, the game needs a regulator because those that are the regulator, current regulators, haven't done the job. Um, uh, that you know, sustainability has to be at the heart of a game that has got financial stresses and strains that mean that more clubs will go the way of a Berry and Macclesfield. It, 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 you know, if we, if we bury our head in the sand and we don't have a fairer distribution of, of the, the money that the game makes and that comes into the game, that, you know, how can you have a creditors rule that gives preference to players and, and, you know, people that are put before local community businesses? How, how can, you know how can players still have the? How can clubs be encumbered by these vast costs when clubs are relegated and their 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 income suddenly is completely taken away and shattered? That players still have these gilt edged contracts that don't have relegation clauses that mitigate the the, the 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 drop in income. You know, I want players to earn as much as they possibly can. Of course, I do, and I think players shouldn't have fixed hard individual salary caps. Absolutely, it's a restraint of trade, but clubs should be should be uh, should have uh, ceilings on how much money they can spend on player salaries based on their income. They can't overstretch themselves because they put at jeopardy the very heart of what football stands for in those communities. They're custodians of those clubs. They aren't just a business. They are a community interest. They are a. Um, uh, they have far wider um, interests within communities, and they serve those interests. And they must take those obligations when they take over a club equally as important as making sure they're 
they can flourish and be competitive and go through the leagues and we don't have closed leagues or we have you know the ability to compete we have, we have the ability to also stretch and, and aspire to go and get promoted and that needs to to take risks but you do those risks without putting at stake the essence of what those clubs stand for so protect the the um, assets of the club the, the the golden share within a club the the ip the name the badge the the, the stadium that those things that should never be put at risk ultimately and, and coming back to that story of Wimbledon and what it stands for, the fans created the club, they, they own the club, um, they have the, the club's interests at heart. Um, strike that right balance and have that common sense and, and put in place um, better distribution of the parachute payments where they're abolished because they, they reward the clubs that are relegated, they, they give a disproportionate amount of money. Um, those clubs that are relegated get more than the, the, the clubs in League One and League Two put together. And therefore, the championship clubs have to compete disproportionately against those clubs to get those parachute payments that creates inflation. I mean, the list goes on about where the game is broken and dysfunctional and doesn't operate well. And fair game is about making the game fairer and and making sure that the game is regulated, that clubs report their uh, stresses and strains and their they, they have their responsibilities, uh, fiduciary responsibilities as much as the, the game's interest and the, and the stakeholder interests at heart and they must be transparent uh, they must be rewarded for giving to the community doing great things in the community share the rewards from the from the top end of the game down into uh, the sustainability index which is a key feature of what we propose so a lot of work that's been put forward to Tracy Crouch in the review but fundamentally solutions that are actually practical um, that are approved by our group of clubs and put forward in, as a consensus across where not everybody agrees with everything, but a consensus mm. has been reached to provide, that, uh, provide those solutions. And in many ways, I suppose this has come at exactly the right time, hasn't it? I mean, you talked about the Super League before, the European Super League. Um, I think as football supporters, especially a lot of football supporters who I guess um, view football as an escape from uh, the stresses and seriousness of everyday life. It's quite easy to turn your blind eye to sources of funding and things you don't like at your club, um, ways in which your club might take advantage of supporters, all that sort of stuff. It felt to me that the Super League was a tipping point for a lot of fans, that a lot of fans thought, you know what, we, we, we can't do this anymore. And if my club is involved with this, and I was really surprised to hear this, you know, friends who support, say, Liverpool or Arsenal going, if my club's involved in this, I'm out. And so really, this is an opportunity where fans have realised that they need to be involved and they can make a difference. Well, we're, we're talking, you know, about fan representation on the board. Um, got, I've got my own ideas about that. And I think it's a, a great idea. I mean, it's got to be carefully positioned about you know how they're elected, what how they represent the fan interests and, and everything else. But a lot of work going into that. Uh, fans fans are, are pivotal in, in in a club, and their value you know must never be disregarded. And I think this European Super League um, that fiasco really was driven home about the fans of football, whichever club they are part of, love the game for many of the reasons you've just said. Um, and they're in tune with the values and principles of, of fair game, um, and ride roughshod over those, and have a, a closed league, and have a breakaway, and 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 you know think that more is more. You know they're just greedy, self-serving, skewed towards bailing out the latest crisis with within some of those some of those clubs or the desire for greed or more money and and it's just you know it's just gross when you when you see that misunderstanding by bright and clever people that don't realize the value that underpins that value and therefore the two are symbiotic and they have to go side by side you cannot have one without the other and disregard the fans and the and the uh, what sport is all about then you, you're undermining the very value that you think you're trying to create. So, I mean, it, it, it was the most stupid uh, concocted sort of idea. Um, and thank goodness for football fans, 
that they collectively realised uh, how stupid it was. They they railed against it, and ultimately, you know that that that, that idea was brought down. Um, so there, therein lies the power of the of the fans. It's, it shows you the value that they have as a stakeholder within the game, and um, that fills you with 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 hope that the the game, by and large, goes through these highs and these lows. But ultimately, fans hold the game to account, and they are the masters of of the game. But equally, they shouldn't be in this position where they have to ensure that the game regulates itself better. You know, we need, we need to hear the fans' voice, but the, the, the change makers, the, the rule makers, the, the people in power need to wake up and they need to make sure that they don't miss this opportunity on behalf of fans and on behalf of the game and on behalf of the, the kids of the next generation of the values of what sport is about. The essence of why we love football or we love sport is not about the money and the and the greed and the and all the rest of it and the and the those competitions and, and more and more of those it's about the essence of of the best post of all is you know was, was it the guys who said i love my nights my cold nights in stoke on a wednesday night you know take that away <laughs> and, and what have i got sort of thing you know whatever whatever it was it was just you know it was just brilliant you know the big big club and 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 saying that's what football's about there he goes, John Scales. And if you want to find out more about Fair Game and what is doing for the future of football in England, it's fairgameuk.org. The subtitle of the organisation is In the Wider Interests of Football, which of course is an interesting twist on what the FA Commission said about an alternative club for Wimbledon, or an AFC Wimbledon or a Wimbledon town, as they put it, being not in the wider interests of football back in 2002. And look how wrong they were. Excited to see what John's got planned for the future. That was Ramble Meets John Scales. We'll see you again for another Ramble Meets here on Football Ramble Presents soon. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network. 